Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. everybody welcome back to all new all different uncanny x's for podcast the show where we take a look at the uncanny x-men comic book franchise as they explode during the 1980s mutant mania i'm your host nico i'm mikey and i'm jonah hope you survived the experience i am so excited to be here i am so happy because this isn't just any episode no ladies and gentlemen non-binary pals and everyone else out there who i didn't cover with appropriate pronoun usage. You are all here for what is going to be one of the most exciting episodes. As you know, throughout X-Men, characters became so popular that they demanded their own series, or at least the fans did. And this was one of the very first X-Men spinoffs to be truly a spinoff of X-Men. While Dazzler was a product designed by a toy company which Marvel facilitated through comics, this is the first true ongoing spinoff of the X-Men. We have with us today Alpha Flight. So excited. And I couldn't be more excited to bring on our newest host, Mikey. So this is going to be a lot of fun. I grew up loving Alpha Flight. Mikey, I think you knew nothing about Alpha Flight going into this. I only knew who Sasquatch was in because I've seen him in Hulk and I saw the toys from the Marvel Legends line. I believe it was Marvel Legends. And then when you said, here's your list. And I was like, great. I know nothing about this. And that's the magic of Marvel Comics. There's always so many new characters to interact with and fall in love with. Jonah, when we started this, I feel like you were in the same position as Mikey, where Alpha Flight was just a totally foreign concept to you. But by now, you've read them like 10 times. Yeah, so Alpha Flight wasn't something that I was aware of or knew about or how it tied into Wolverine's backstory and all this good stuff, but I was aware of who the character Northstar is, and that's just because of his future characterization of his sexuality, because I know who everyone, who all gay people know each other, basically, so I know which characters are Including fictional gays, yes. Fictional gays also know real gays, it's very true. One of the things I find most fascinating about Alpha Flight is it's not just that Alpha Flight was so popular that they demanded their own series, but Alpha Flight received an ongoing series before Wolverine did. So these characters that were created to flesh out Wolverine's backstory ultimately took center stage before Logan did, though, around the same time he did get his Chris Claremont Frank Miller miniseries. I personally think one of the strangest things about Alpha Flight's slow growth is how long it took. A lot of these adventures were over a year apart. People had to wait an awfully long time to get more Alpha Flight. Mikey, were you kind of thrown by the changes in the X-Men from the issues that you read with the giant gaps in between? Yeah, so it was a little bit more challenging to figure out what was going on, especially during this time where I know they had a lot of different stories. It was become a very, very popular book and a lot of different characters were introduced and then some were brought back who haven't been around in a while. So it was, especially when looking at the 
the dates for these. They're very a year apart, a lot of them. So it wasn't as fluid as something I think you'd see today where they would have a one of six arc. And I think that at the time, well, not having been alive, might be something that people were more used to. But yes, yeah, so it was very reading them in these chunks was the best way to really grasp and understand the characters and understand what was going on, especially with Wolverine. But I think if I was reading it live in the 70s and 80s, it would have been like, oh, wait, I have to go back into my box and find this issue from a year ago to remember who this character was. Absolutely. As we say on this show a lot, the age of Wikipedia completely altered the functionality of the comics medium as has the ready availability of back issues and digital content. Jonah, it has been so long for you as an X-Men fan since we covered issue 109 the first time. I think that might have been the sixth or seventh episode of the series, and here we are somewhere in the 30s. So was it fun going back and seeing the X-Men? This is the first time I think you've reread issues for the series. Yes and no. It's interesting to see how much has changed so I don't want to say fast, but you see such a stark difference in the dynamics between the characters in earlier issues that we covered in earlier episodes to now where we are. It's really almost jarring that this is how the team acted once, and now that they're completely different, it's almost... I don't even want to say it's a 180, because I feel like they're on a completely different path than what you would actually expect. I agree. It's hard to recognize the pre-Phoenix Saga X-Men from the post Magneto 150 X-Men. It's a really complicated web that Claremont painstakingly wove together over the course of 15 years, hundreds of comics, and multiple titles. Today we're going to be covering Uncanny X-Men 109, 120, and 121, as well as 139 and 140. All of these issues were written by Chris Claremont and penciled by John Byrne, and I believe there's a whole lot of co-plotting, jumping back and forth. As a matter of fact, I actually have a quote to start things off from John Byrne about Uncanny 109. In X-Men 109, you introduced Weapon Alpha, who later changed his name to Vindicator and finally Guardian. Were you already planning to introduce Alpha Flight when you did that issue? John Byrne replied, I had designed most of the members of Alpha Flight as fan characters. The idea for that story actually came from Dave, Dave being Dave Cockrum. Dave had mentioned to Chris that the Canadian government probably wasn't real happy that Wolverine, who had cost them six million or whatever, had gone off and joined the American superhero group so they would probably send somebody to get him back. When Chris told me that, I said, oh, we have to do that story, and here's the guy. I wanted to call him Guardian in X-Men 109 because that was his name as a fan character, taken from a line in the Canadian National Anthem. We stand on guard for thee. But Shooter, being Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief at the time, said that we couldn't use Guardian because of the Guardians of the Galaxy. So Chris called him Weapon Alpha in his first appearance and later Vindicator, which he got from a cool airplane. Anyway, as soon as I got Alpha Flight, their own book, I decided we were not going to call him Vindicator anymore. Canada doesn't have anything to vindicate. Once again, John Byrne sounds like the bitterest bunny about everything involving Chris Claremont to the most extreme degree. He really does, and I think probably that's a line that I never expected to hear, a brand new sentence for me. Canada has nothing to vindicate. Yeah, he's a, he's a cranky he's a cranky bastard. So, Mikey, something you might not be familiar with is that John Byrne and Chris Claremont have what is considered the greatest run of Uncanny X-Men ever, lasting from 109 to 143. That said, it ended at 143 because Chris Claremont and John Byrne just can't get along. Does John Byrne have an airplane? No, he has an attitude problem. Uh, maybe he's jealous because he didn't get an airplane. I think he's jealous he didn't get an airplane. I think we've solved it. Chris Claremont literally says he, to this day, does not know why John Byrne won't 
forgive him. It's the airplane. I think it's the airplane. I think it's the airplane. So, to catch everybody up a little bit, Uncanny X-Men 109 came out in February of 78, 121 and 122 came out in April and May of 79, with 139 and 140 finishing things off in November and December of 1980. A quick crash course to get everybody caught up for Uncanny 109, the Giant Size X-Men appeared first in Giant Size X-Men number 1, where they went to Krakoa to rescue their teammates. In 94 and 95, the old X-Men leave and Thunderbird died. In Uncanny X-Men 96, the X-Men find a demon that lives at their mansion. That happened. 97 was Sentinels attacking during Christmas shopping. 98 through 100 saw the X-Men give chase to space to rescue teammates, battle Stephen Lang, and ultimately Jean made contact with the Phoenix. In 101 to 103, the X-Men head to Cassidy Keep while Jean recovers from dying in a real big way. In 104, the X-Men battle Magneto. 105 to 108 is the very beloved Cosmic Shi'ar, Deken, Lalandra, Phoenix saga that we just could not get enough of. This was the first issue, 109, after that big epic, and in so many ways, it was such a self-contained solo issue that worked so well. Mikey, this was your first time reading Weapon Alpha, who is the main focus of a lot of what we're going to be discussing. What were your feelings coming into this issue, reading this new guy you'd never met, who is all of a sudden Wolverine's best friend from being in the government? I wasn't sure if what I was going to expect was a villain or a hero or an anti-hero. Was he in it for his own self-interest? Was it a... I, I would guess that their backstory is going to be explored at some point uh, or mentioned. And is it... I know, well, it's Canada, so they're not bad. It's not like the Soviet Union at the time. So is he in it for his own motives? And like, what was really going on? And why Why did they really want Wolverine back? That is so much of what is going to predominantly dictate Alpha Flight's narrative until they get their own book. Jonah, it had been so long for you since you first read him as Weapon Alpha. You'd become used to him as a vindicator. With what Mikey's saying, were those those same feelings you had that first time? And what was it like coming back to it this time? It was a pretty interesting because now I know more about Mac than I did the first time. And when looking at this retroactively, his actions still go in line with future characterization. And I think that's pretty great that him as a character hasn't changed much, at least in the sense of his appearances in Uncanny. He is doing his job, he's very by the books, and that's just part of it, is he's a hero, and sometimes being a hero means doing the things you don't want to do, like fighting your best friend. I agree completely. The plot of X-Men 109 sees Weapon Alpha sent to the mansion to, I guess, abduct Wolverine back in some sort of crazy international kidnapping. The X-Men have just returned from countless missions, they've been to space, Storm got a pie thrown in her face by Iron Fist. A lot of stuff happened. And now the X-Men are finally home, and they're just trying to have a nice day. All Wolverine wants to do is play hunt. This remains my favorite moment in the entire story. Wolverine does not want to kill an animal. He wants to hunt for emotional sport and then release the animal. And Storm's like, oh, damn, I judged you wrong. Jonah, that was one of our favorite moments in the entire early run. Yes, and... A lot of, part, part of the reason why I think it was our favorite moment is because this was a nuanced Wolverine we haven't gotten yet, and that's just a lot of the MO with the Alpha Flight appearances in the X-Men, is it's delivering more nuances to Wolverine that we don't, we didn't have, and it's bringing a lot more depth to his character than we really have seen. Now, Mikey, I know that the world sees Wolverine as a tall musical theater performer 
who is the unlikely romantic lead and has played gay on Broadway multiple times. So I imagine the world sees Wolverine a little bit different than this guy. What was it like coming to the Wolverine that made Wolverine a famous household name? It was definitely not the Wolverine that I was used to. The interaction with Storm saying that he was going to hunt the doe and then just to touch it to get to that point where she doesn't run away and then just let her go. And he had a sort of like a like a nice like deep down inside he was a nice guy and not this grizzled cigar smoking person who's just a loner who's kind of the anti-hero doing business for himself not afraid to 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 kill people or do what he needs to do kind of the way Hugh Jackman has portrayed him or how he's been portrayed recently in the past 15 or so years in the comics i was very caught off guard that he was very lighthearted at it and in this issue and i was like is this going to be what it's like during this era since i haven't really read much of this era of wolverine so it was definitely something that i wasn't expecting and it really is what's so great about wolverine at all times wolverine is the contradictive negotiations of rage and honor of love and death and it's so fascinating the way Claremont painstakingly and lovingly crafted his story. I do think that this issue sees one of the worst examples of mistreatment of women. I will forever be furious that the woman who in her first issue came running in with a machine gun, screaming that she was going to shoot things because it was her secret mutant power. I'm so disappointed that that woman gets thrown into the water. There's a moment where Mac, not meaning to, accidentally injures Moira. That injury is what makes him realize this is not the right mission for him. But hurting Moira pissed me off because Moira literally charges in with machine guns and shoots people. That was not my Moira. Mike, so Mikey, you know Moira from first class, right? Yeah. Now, Mikey, Jonah, you guys know very different Moiras. Jonah, you've never gotten through first class. Mikey, you've seen it. Mikey, you want to tell Jonah a little bit about first class Moira? Uh, she was uh, working for the government, CIA, early incarnation of the CIA, I believe. And um, she was kind of like a secret agent and just kind of helping out the X-Men, really getting used to being around mutants or people with powers and was not expecting what I saw or putting two of the two that the characters are one and the same. It sounds a little bit different, doesn't it, Jonah? <laughs> I actually love Rose Byrne's performance as Moira. She gives a genuinely beautiful performance as Moira. But it is a difficult-to-recognize character. I think this story is so important to coming together and understanding how the X-Men function, not just as a team, but as a family. This was about them protecting each other. I also need to always give out any shout-out to Beefcake. This was an era where cheesecake was predominant, cheesecake being the objectification of women into skimpy outfits and sexualizing them in their poses. But Claremont and Byrne love sexualizing Colossus too, and I think there's value in that, that this book at least attempted a progressive balance of that sexuality. You know, Jonah, you've by this point read the entire Byrne era. You're well past it in our reading. So what was it like going back to early burn art? It was still just as nice. It was refreshing. It's just all the good stuff that I remember about it. And it's not that I don't like Dave Cockrum's art. I think Dave Cockrum gives a fantastic interpretation of the X-Men. And I love his art. But John Byrne's art is just something special. And it's memorable. And it's just something that you never... I say this in the best way you get used to. It's always something that you can always go, Ah, yeah, that's good. I feel the exact same way. Mikey, was this your first time reading classic 
comics this early with this art style? Yes, it was. In like a in an arc kind of sense, not just a one-off issue here and there. I really, really enjoyed the the way the colors are very vibrant and the lines that are used and it's just the attention to detail it's kind of like you get a little bit of how it was in the very very beginning when when stanley and kirby were doing things and then you get a little bit of how in the 90s into the 2000s and i feel like this really inspired people like the jim lees and and you could see how this was the seed for the X-Men animated series in the 90s and kind of how they did things going forward up until the mid 2000s i completely agree 109 is a really strong introduction to Mac. We get a sense of his honor, and those are the only things we've really talked about with that character so far. He's somebody who believes in doing the right thing, and when he's forced to do something he doesn't believe is right, he questions the validity of the mission. I really love who Mac is, and I love this first appearance of him. The classic introduces his wife, Heather, a little early now jonah and i have long screamed angrily and furiously at the litany of characters that have been introduced artificially early by classic including moira mctaggart but heather's inclusion doesn't bother me it just doesn't really add anything when scott and kurt are having their interaction and kurt just wants to go on a date to go see star wars and he's just kind of talking and being a very carefree kind of self scott's just kind of a dick and he I feel like since at the time, late 70s, mental and emotional uh, like issues were not, were not really a thing. Or, I mean, they were, but they weren't as pronounced as they are today. But I feel like the way that Scott was written, he's very self-obsessed and very, I don't, like, he's in love with Gene, but he's, I think he's trying to just fill a void in himself. And it's very... It, you can see this all the way up to Avengers vs. X-Men with him, and it's something that he has throughout the series, but it makes him a very, to me, a very unlikable character. You clearly belong on this show. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. It was really hard for me to contain my laughter through your analysis. You really belong on this show. Uncanny 120 and 121, once again by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, sees the X-Men on their way somewhere. I can't help but notice that the X-Men are constantly traveling. That's like their thing. When we last saw the X-Men in 109, they had just met Weapon Alpha, and now things are getting crazy. They battle a guy named Warhawk in 110, and we pretend that never happened. They get brainwashed into a circus and fight Magneto in a 111 and 112. They have a flying wagon. That's the best part, the flying covered wagon. Then we go to the Savage Land before ultimately finding ourselves in Japan from 113 to 119. This is the X-Men attempting to get home after the longest fucking journey ever. This was a great time for the title, but it was definitely a time of a lot of upheaval and uncertainty. I imagine this had to be really hard to walk into, Mikey. It was, um, especially since it was a year prior to since last seeing um, Weapon Alpha. And um, it, it got a very syndication kind of vibe to it, whereas they were kind of standalone and one-offs. And what I appreciate what they did back then versus what they kind of don't really do so much now is they kind of give you a little bit of backstory and a little bit of backdrop about who's who and kind of do that Stanley everybody's first, this might be somebody's first issue kind of vibe to it. So I do appreciate that and it does help with them talking about their past adventures if you didn't read it. But it's very why they're, they're going all over the place. And it's just like, these guys don't get a break. <laughs> no, in fact, this is part of an unending run of pain. As Jonah and I used to joke, 111 through 
121 is pretty much a continuous story with very few logical breaks. Jonah, was it hard to dial back into this particular era, this kind of Gene is in one place, Xavier's in one place, there's the Muir Island X-Men, and then we have who we have, and they're always traveling in there. Was that hard to dial back into? No, not really, but looking back, it's just so many people all over the world, and we're going to later find out that everyone knows there's so much going on, and everyone is so spread out that sometimes you're spreading your butter a little too thin. I agree. It made it very difficult. I believe we even called this episode something like X-Men Worldwide, a story in three parts, because... It was so difficult to really peg down the narrative. Now, every location that they visit in this era, we will visit again. But man, it's a lot going on. And then on top of that, it was so many new characters. Was that at least helpful, Mikey, that the Alpha Flight team was so thoroughly introduced? Yes, definitely was. I do appreciate how they didn't really tell you their powers right away. And they kind of showed you who they were in their normal lives, everyday lives. And they kind of just said, here's everybody. Here's who they are. And it's extremely helpful coming into this and like not being familiar with any of the characters rather than them just throwing them on a page and saying, oh, this is the Sasquatch. No backstory, no nothing given. I feel like they introduced it very, very well. I kind of wish that they do this going forward with all new characters in the future. I agree. In fact, my only complaint is I don't know that it ever really seems like North Star and Aurora have speed powers and light blast powers. I think their abilities are a little confusing at times. But other than that, I really, really agree with you. It's as though at 109, they were still trying to figure out how to be a hit book. And by 120 and 121, they understood that exactly like you said, any issue could be someone's first issue. And they wanted everyone to be able to join in. Jonah, you've seen the Alpha Flight characters a few times now. Was it interesting revisiting their first appearance and seeing the subtle ways they've changed since? Yes, I completely agree. And this is... Something that harkens back to an issue that I had with the original Giant Size X-Men number one where this entire podcast was started is that there were too many characters. There were a lot of characters introduced. We're basically introduced to a whole new team and nobody really gets a lot of characterization because there's so many people. I think the only characterization we got is that North Star is a dick. But that's beside the point. Maybe a little more time developing what their powers are could have helped. Because Snowbird, who I like, can also do other animals that aren't just a giant snowbird. That's not really explained, but I thought it was really funny. I personally liked it. The fact that they didn't really dive super into it of who's who, who's their powers, and what they can really obtain. It kind of left me wanting more from it. And it was like, okay, I know who this person is. I know their code name. I know their real name. I know they're a doctor. I know they're like a Native American shaman. I get it. I'm like, okay, I get that. And then seeing their powers develop, it's like, oh, it's what else do they have left in the bag? Are they really going to be, are they really the Avengers of Canada? Are they really as strong as any Avenger? Are they like, can they beat Wolverine? Are they toying with the X-Men? Are they, like, what are they doing? And I feel like it left, if this was going to be a a very, very long arc, like leave me wanting more and coming back to it, it's like, oh wow, you can do that? You can turn into something else other than a giant snowbird? Like, that's awesome. What else can you do? And I really enjoyed that they didn't give you too much, but they gave you enough to want more. And I think it's that mentality that is what ultimately led Alpha Flight to being so successful that they would go on to appear in other titles, not just the X-Men. I do agree that there are way too many characters in the book at this point, though. We say goodbye to Clan Yoshida in Japan, so we say goodbye to 
Sunfire and Mariko. Then we travel to Canada, where we get six members of Alpha Flight. Plus, we're still running around with the X-Men, and we have some bonus X-Men with us. We're still carrying Banshee and Colleen, Misty Knight. The cast is so immense right now. And there's all of the asides on Muir Island. Essentially, the X-Men had grown to be such a large narrative, there was no way that it couldn't get a second book. I also think the little ways in which Claremont already knew who these people were going to be, like Northstar going to get the drop on Storm, and Scott's like, what the fuck? And like optic blasts him, and it's like, no, you sneaky little brat. That was a very cool scene. Yeah, one of this is probably one of my favorite Scott stories of all time. I like how he's like, they took Wolverine, we get him back. Like, I love Scott being such a take charge bastard in this arc. Uh, it's so fucking fun, and I do love how much magic there is in, in Alpha Flight. The X Men are so about mutancy, but Alpha Flight's about magic. Shaman, my favorite member of Alpha Flight, and again, I have friends that do this incredible Alpha Flight family cosplay. They're so incredible. I'll try and make sure to link to that. And Shaman, so powerful. Snowbird is so mysterious and complicated. And again, I find Vindicator being ruled by honor to make a lot of sense with why he's so close with Logan. This is also the most Logan backstory we get for quite a while. Jonah, you're still asking a ton of questions about Logan every time we do an episode. Rereading this, this one page of backstory we get, does it help recontextualize anything for you? Yes. It was just really nice because on the X-Men, uh, at this point when we, read, when we read it the first time, really didn't have a lot of their backstories outside of Storm. And maybe you can argue Banshee because he was already an established character. But we didn't really know a lot of Kurt's life at the circus. We didn't really isn't much to know more about Colossus. And Scott's already established, so... Wolverine kind of makes sense to have a focused story on uh, outside of, unless you're going to pick Kurt, but they're flying from Japan to New York, so it makes sense to stop in Canada and not go the other way and stop in Germany or something. But it was really nice because Logan is definitely setting himself up as more important than some of the other X-Men. Logan gets a lot of spotlight. So it was really nice to, for him to actually have backstory to get into his character and why he, he is the way he is. What was his original purpose absolutely one of the things i love the most about this arc is that alpha flight in their attempt to fight the x-men are now fully aware that they could hurt civilians they've never experienced anything like this in their combat training this is their first mission they feel very unsure of themselves they're very frightened the x-men classic page is giving the government a little bit more oh we should help them oh well no they've got it oh we should let wolverine go it adds very little to the narrative but there is something beautiful about how scared alpha flight is that they might hurt people and that's the kind of thing I love about Alpha Flight. It's why I feel they're heroes. Mikey, you're reading these comics as somebody who grew up in a much more modernized comic era. Was it interesting to see concern for collateral damage be a paramount issue for these heroes and not a secondary idea? Yes, it was. Um, particularly, there was a there was a scene in the panels where Vindicator crashes through the roof of a store, and he after he does it, he realizes, "Oh crap! I could have hurt these people. I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't think about it." And at first, I thought this guy is very intelligent. He's a doctor. He's in charge of this whole thing. Why would he not know? And then, as you point out, this is their first. They don't know. They've never experienced it before. It's not something that you think I'm gonna. Hey, I'm gonna fight on a on a 
battlefield somewhere in the forest i'm going to fight at this secret base not in a shopping mall and i think that you really see him as a human you see the human in him and like it becomes a humanized character and you really see the type of person that he is very different than 109 109 you're like is he a good guy a bad guy anti-hero what now it's like no you're really a good guy deep down you're just trying to do the right thing or what you feel is the right thing i think that panel in particular crashing through the mall was really what brought that out for him Absolutely. I also feel there were some really strong moments of characterization amongst the team, especially in response to the possibility of losing Logan. Jonah, was it helpful to see one of those times where you could isolate the threat of family appearing, where Scott is considering how to take out the Canadian government to get Wolverine back? Scott's like about to go all John McClane on Justin Trudeau. Yes, absolutely. It was really nice because it's... if. This story took place much earlier in the Uncanny Run. I don't think Scott would be so ready to get Wolverine back, and he probably would have said, oh, good riddance, we couldn't work with him anyway. But seeing Scott so concerned and trying to formulate a plan of, all right, how do we get him back? Do we buy him back? What do we do? What's the plan here of breaking and destroying the Canadian government so we can have this one character? It's really nice because it's something that we constantly talk about is that if the X-Men are known for being a family, I want to see that. And that was a nice, subtle moment of family of we're losing a family member. All right, how do we get him back? You know, what do we do? And it was it was it was refreshing and nice to see Scott be a good person. Sasquatch destroying a plane was pretty awesome. I fucking love Sasquatch. I love every version of Sasquatch. I love the bigger magical stuff that's going to come up. I'm just going to say the word now. Tarnak. And it's going to be incredible. I fucking love Sasquatch. I love Walter. It's such a great character. Jonah, were there any moments for you where you were like, yep, gotta mention that? No. Uh, actually, yes. Really quickly. Um, it's actually, it's, it's a little bit something that Mikey said earlier. It's really interesting that we're kind of seeing the regional slash country teams. We have the X-Men, well, United States has so many different teams from whatever universes you're looking at and whatever runs you're looking at. But Canada now has their team and you talked about the Soviet Union at one point and in, in a classic, they kind of reference the Soviet Union making their own mutant team. So I just think it's really interesting that we're, we really are X-Men worldwide, but we're seeing how a team in a different country works together and what they're like. And I thought that was nice. One thirty nine and one forty are issues that were covered, I guess, semi recently, at least the most recent of everything, because numbers are chronological. How convenient. At this point, the X-Men had their phenomenal multi-parter against Arcade, who everyone knows by now is my favorite X-Men villain by far. They then fought Proteus, who is like my third favorite X-Men villain. And then they fought Dark Phoenix, who doesn't even go on a list. She does not belong on a list. You should not put Dark Phoenix on a list. She's much too cool. So she deserved better than that movie. And I guess there's nothing left to do but talk about what must be the strongest turning point in the X-Men narrative thus far. The X-Men just lost Jean. She just passed away. Banshee had to quit due to his injuries. Scott quit because sad boy. And we just got Kitty Pride. Now, Kitty Pride has had two adventures with the X-Men. She was in the first half of the Dark Phoenix Saga from 129 to 131, as well as appeared in one panel of 138, which was a catch-up issue. And her first full adventure as an X-Man was an annual focusing on Nightcrawler's backstory and family. This is the first time Kitty Pride is like really an X-Man and she is barely an X-Man this story. 
that is neither here nor there. This is one of those issues that cements Logan and Kurt as brothers. And for that, I know Jonah must have been really excited to reread it. Oh, yes, I definitely was. This was probably your first time reading like that super paternal, fraternal Wolverine, Mikey. This was like your first time reading him as like a dude dude. How was it for you seeing the kind of layers and levels that Claremont crafts into Logan in that first one? He's a hunter who doesn't want to hurt the doe. In the second one, he understands responsibility and is willing to turn himself over to the Canadian government. And in this one, he just wants to make amends with his friends. How was it seeing this many iterations of one man in three years? It's definitely not the Wolverine character that I'm used to. I was quite shocked that he would actually want to go and make amends. He, to me, feels like the type of character who'd want to make amends on the battlefield where you guys would beat the crap out of each other and then right before he's about to do the killing blow he would extend the hand and say you know nice job like even if he was about to lose he would just say you know props but i was kind of shocked that he'd want to go out of his way to go back to canada into the enemy quote-unquote territory and just be like hey are we good are we cool like we're good and not wait for them to come back and be like hey let's just stop and be friends I completely agree with you, Mikey, that it's a little bit shocking that this is how Wolverine wants to resolve it. But I think this is due to losing Jean. Wolverine was very much in love with Jean, and Jean was very special to Wolverine. And I think with her death and what that meant for him, I think he realized that time is short and that he really does love the people he's with. And he has to grow up a bit and really take care of things properly if he's going to stay and really be part of the X-Men. I think, you, yeah, you're absolutely right. You definitely see a, a humanistic point of him and that, after all, uh, even though they are homo superior, they are still human at the end of the day and they have human emotion. The first thing I see when I read this issue is half of Alpha Flight is missing and that half of Alpha Flight that's missing is in another title as we speak, well, as they spoke in this issue. And Mikey and I will be covering that in the next issue of Alpha Flight. I wanted to make sure, though, that we covered everything that had already been covered and make sure that the stage was properly set for Alpha Flight. That said, half of Alpha Flight still seems crazy powerful. Yet, I found the Wendigo to be a strong enough villain, even if I did not feel the action in this issue really paid off in any way. This is, of the three, the issue with the weakest action, but the best art. So it's pretty funny, I just recently picked up the reprint of Incredible Hulk 181, which is the first appearance of Wolverine slash part of the first appearance of the Wendigo. And I have to say, his artwork originally, weird, he's much scrawnier and looks smaller, and now in these uncanny issues, he's much bulkier, almost basically like a white recolor of Sasquatch. That's what he kind of looks like a little bit. That is the funniest thing you've ever said because the Wendigo figure that they just released this year is a white repaint of the Sasquatch figure. I'm serious. I'm on to something. You really are. It's a it's a new head mold and a complete repaint, but the Sasquatch figure had been a Build-A-Figure a couple of lines ago, and now the Wendigo figure is the Build-A-Figure that has been released with the Vindicator toy that they just put out. That's pretty great. When Logan and Kurt meet heather you definitely show a more humanistic side of wolverine that he has friends they go way back he's very cheery and very like a happy positive person it's revealed that his name is logan yeah is this the first time that that they we as the audience know that that's logan sure is this is the first time his name is ever stated on panel so prior to this they just called him wolverine 
Yeah, in fact, Wolverine didn't take off his mask for a number of issues. Wolverine existed for over two years before he ever removed his mask. That was the first time anybody found out that that's what his hair looked like. In fact, originally, they wanted Wolverine to be revealed to be a 20-something, a very young man under that mask. It was, I believe, Dave Cockrum who was like, no, old-looking... And yeah, Wolverine is an enigma that they very slowly peel back the layers on. That really was learning his name. And I'm happy that he revealed it to Kurt. If he had to reveal it to somebody, let it be his little brother. I did like that. I did like how Kurt was surprised. He goes, wait, your name's Logan? And why didn't we ever know that? So he's been living with these people, going on these missions with these people, and they never knew his name. So even without the mask, he was just being called Wolverine. And I thought it showed kind of more of the Wolverine that I'm used to. The secret, the I keep things to myself, I, I don't really like to talk about anything, bub, kind of thing. And I saw elements of that in that, and I really appreciated it. I saw the way that it was portrayed, how Kurt was surprised. He was, wait, you actually have a real name? And I really enjoyed that. We almost half expect Wolverine to say, well, you never asked, because they never did. I find in a lot of ways, since we're studying this explicitly just for Alpha Flight, there is so much more room for the characters to mend their emotional their emotional quilts together you, you know what i mean like shaman and snowbird you really don't understand them well enough going into this but i really walked away with a strong understanding of, how, of who those two characters are and they're two of my favorite members of alpha flight ever so it was a real pleasure getting to spend that kind of time with these characters I will say I very much noticed North Star and Aurora missing. It's very obvious that they are missing because your speedsters become such a huge part of your fighting style. I think that's part of why the cliffhanger at the end of 139 is so boring to me. I really don't think Nightcrawler's about to die. Gene died in 137. They faked Nightcrawler's death right after 138. I don't think he's going to die at the end of 139. It just doesn't seem like a likely storytelling choice. So maybe that's me using a little too much awareness of what's going on around it and in that regard humbling the validity of the story. But I found myself bored by the cliffhanger between 139 and it's really the only time I feel that way in this run. The flashback scenes with Hulk vs. Wolverine with the Wendigo. I, having never read Incredible Hulk 181, being familiar with the cover and I know what happens, if this is my first issue and I'm picking it up, wow, that was a very, very nice touch that they did and a very, I appreciate it. And now it makes me want to go back and read 181 and if there's any more to that arc with Hulk and Wolverine. And now in 2019, you have the Hulk vs. Wolverine cartoon. You have, uh, they've interacted with each other many, many times in many issues and many terms of media. And you kind of see, there's a glimpse of that here. And it's like, oh, these characters actually have a backstory and they didn't just make that up to make money. No, in fact, this year, they just started releasing a title called Hulk Vereens. So they seriously still connect. I think the line of heroism we trace through Alpha Flight is maybe the most important note of Alpha Flight. The X-Men are a family. All Thor stories are about worthiness. Spider-Man stories are about responsibility. Alpha Flight stories are about heroism in the face of great danger. And I really love that that's the tone we set for Alpha Flight with this first episode. We've had an amazing time exploring these characters, their arcs, their narratives, and seeing how, in trying to enhance Wolverine's story, they shaped a beautiful team that covers so much ground that the X-Men couldn't cover on their own. Jonah, as always, it's been such a pleasure having you back. Did you have any parting glances before 
we say goodbye to Alpha Flight for now. I will say 139 and 140, probably the funniest issues I've ever read. I think their use of comedy was, as I would say, peak. But it was really nice to get back into this team that became its own thing because of popularity and it's what fans wanted and it's what they thought was the best decision because these characters had a chance of going somewhere. It was really nice to just refresh on their origins and get ready to see where their own stories are going to take them and how this Canadian team is going to differ from the American team we're following. And I love all of those threads. Mikey, this was so exciting for me, bringing somebody in, not just to the X-Men and the podcast, but bringing somebody into Alpha Flight and getting to share a team I love with somebody. What was it like coming in and fast-tracking three years of development that had people so excited 30-something years ago? I really enjoyed it. I never, not knowing anything about the team or the characters, I felt that it was the way it was introduced and they gave you just a little bit, but it makes you wanting more. Now I want to go and read all everything there is to know about them and get really dive into these characters. And when they inevitably make a movie or a show about them, I'll be right there and, you know, opening night to go see it. But then I'll know more about the characters and appreciate the, the film more or the show more. And I just think that the, the way it wasn't just here you go. Here's some here's a team from Canada. They really wanted to flesh out a new team, a new group of heroes, new stories, new characters that are actually important and not just here for this one standalone episode. And I love everything you're saying, especially because you're going to be covering everything Alpha Flight. So uh, fuckle the buck up because you are in for some crazy stories. Mikey, it has been such a pleasure having you. I'm so glad you're joining the show here with Alpha Flight. Jonah, I know everybody gets to catch you on Dazzler and Uncanny X-Men these days, but where can everybody find you in your off time? If you would like to find me bamfing about, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah... No, hold on, I have to reverse that. <laughs> at Jonah.Rubino and at Jonah Rubino. Beautiful. I love that we know where we can find ourselves. Mikey, is uh, where can everybody find you online? Uh, you can find me at Twitter at MikeTheBorg9 with a number 9 at the end. Uh, no, it's not a Star Trek reference to Star Trek 9, but... Uh, and then I will be starting a podcast very, very soon in the very near future called Pop Culture Federation, where we talk about things going on right now, current pop culture wise, as well as dabbling into nostalgia. Beautiful. We'll have all sorts of updates. You can follow along with that and get yourself on that podcast, too. As for me, you can find me here on the Cage Club Network, where you should feel free to contribute to the Patreon and keep the lights running. Throw Joey some money. He's a super cool guy. You can find me on HTML, Husbands Talking More or Less with Kevo, where we take a look at all sorts of pop media matters. You can always find me on Now and Again, where, along with my best friend Chris Podcast, we take a look at the face of pop music as it changed alongside the Now That's What I Call Music series. We've been on a summer-long deep dive into Carly Rae Jepsen, and I believe that's coming to an end about now, but... Man, that show has gone through some phenomenal iterations. It's been so much fun. You can check out my comic book work at KidRiotComics.com, where I create an inclusive, diverse comic starring modern heroes for a modern storytelling audience. And if you want to check out pictures of me being kind of thoughty, you can check me out on Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right. Until we cross back over into Canada, we'll see ya. See you later. Bye. <laughs>